to overcome it, we're going to have to go back a bit, down a bit, sideways a bit, and, and we're going to travel 20 times, 30 times, 1,000 times further than we had hoped and anticipated. But the initial way isn't doable. So therefore, what? You either quit or you have to, to improvise and then put in the hard work to really break the back of that and, and then progress. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Phil White is an incredible human being and a prolific writer and author. He is the co-author of several books, including Waterman 2.0 with past guest Dr. Kelly Starrett, The 17-Hour Fast with Dr. Frank Merritt, Unplugged with Dr. Andy Galpin and Brian McKenzie, and Game Changer with Fergus Conley. He also writes for many of the leading brands in the human performance space and tells stories for Intrinsic, which is an organization that helps military veterans, firefighters, police officers, and athletes overcome PTSD, TBIs, and concussions. But before Phil started telling his stories, which we learn he discovered his passion for stories from his grandmother, he wanted to be an athlete. He moved across the pond from the UK and then a ways further into the Midwest to join a soccer team in Kansas City in college and pursue his childhood dream. But Phil was an English major, and the more he wrote, the more his talent started to shine. After graduating, he had his first opportunity to co-write a book, and this was a pivotal point in his writing career. He continued to write more and more, and before he knew it, he was a writer. And in this process, Phil learned an important lesson, and it's one that he shares with all of us today in this episode. Honor your God-given talent in whatever you're doing. But Phil isn't just a talented wordsmith. He's also a talented collaborator, really a master communicator by any measure. He's exceptionally good at helping to draw ideas out of others, which he says is driven by an insatiable curiosity and then translating those ideas into the written word. Phil turns these ideas into art through his talent, but at the foundation of of it all is a willingness to build relationships, which I think is probably the least taught but most important skill that anyone and everyone should have. One of the most important relationships that Phil has built is that of, of the relationship that he has with his wife and partner who helps him guide him and speaks belief into him and helps challenge him and, and, and they collaborate together and it's a beautiful relationship. And here's the thing about relationships and relying on your talents, you don't even really need to rely on your God-given talents to form relationships. You'll be able to create something incredible if you combine the two, but anyone, any one of us and every one of us can build healthy and strong relationships in every area of life. If you are willing 
to put in the time, energy, and effort. This is a wonderful conversation, so bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Phil White, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. So happy to have you and to connect with you. And a big shout out and a thank you to Powell for, uh, for connecting us. Yeah, well, he's a good man indeed and has been very helpful on that front. And really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely. Well, as people might be able to uh, notice as we start that one of us has an accent and it's probably me. <laughs> no, obviously you are, you hail from a location other than the United States of America originally, I'm guessing. And so I would love to learn a little bit about your origin story, where you are originally from, and what a typical day growing up in the White household was like. Okay, sure. Well, I grew up in Stonehenge where the demons dwell. That's a Spinal <laughs> Tap reference. <laughs> and, and they do live well, by the way, they do. Yeah, actually, so my mom lives in a town called Gillingham, which is in uh, Dorset. And that's two train stops away from uh, Salisbury, which is actually the city, the closest city to Stonehenge. So I didn't make that up. Final tap references aside. So, yeah, I mean, it's very rural. You know, my friends and I call it the Shire, and it's a lot of historical sites. I mean, obviously, Stonehenge being the biggest one, you know, the city of Bath is pretty close. I guess Bristol, where Ardman, the guys that do Wallace and Gromit, that's uh, the nearest city. And then also out of that city came kind of the, the big musical scene with Portishead and Massive Attack and the whole drum and bass thing back in the day. And um, so that's the nearest city. But yeah, where I am is not <laughs> it's not a city by any means. And so I spent most of my childhood, the latter part, in a, a little village called Borton, where uh, a few of my good friends still live. And it's basically a, a couple of churches, four pubs. The only shop was a little shop that... Uh, was also a post office and was also right next to a gas station. And it, it was a village of about 900, maybe 1,000 people. And yeah, so just really rolling hills. It kind of some, somewhat similar to the 100-acre wood area in some ways. You know, AA Mills, Winnie the Pooh, that whole thing. So if you can picture that, that's kind of what it was like. And so, yeah, I mean, sometimes my friend Luke and I would go for walks that were long enough that we would get lost in a wood or in the countryside. And then we'd have to kind of hope we could find our way back by dark. And I did that by myself sometimes. And, you know, blackberries growing wild in the hedges and that kind of thing. So blackberrying is actually a verb slash an activity there, which I kind of miss kind of August, September, October time. And... Uh, what, do you, what do you miss about it? Just the... I think the, we've got a good local revival brews here in Evergreen, Colorado, which is about four and a half thousand miles away, I guess, from where I grew up. But um, I, I, I worked in pubs growing up, and I think that pub culture is like the great equalizer. So outside of the alcohol component, you know, most villages in in the UK and in Europe in general are designed around a few features, and one is a village green where you can kick a ball around or for a frisbee or whatever they used to do a few hundred years ago, joust or something maybe. <laughs> and then also, um, you know, the, the, the churches, you know, the, the faith community that is somewhat dwindling there in many ways. And then also with the pub, you know, we used to have the guy, the best storyteller was a guy called John Higgins, who was a, a chimney sweep of all things slash handyman. I mean, it sounds like I grew up in the 1800s, right? Like a Dickens novel, but it's true. And, and then there was Steve, who was a lawyer, 
And there was Mark who seemed to ride his bike an awful lot. And I'm not sure what else Mark did. Maybe he he was moneyed in some way, but uh, it was really the great equalizer. So all these guys from these different backgrounds and walk of life would would come together several days a week during the week and just just have one or two pints and then go home to their, their families. And on the weekend, usually on a Saturday, most of the families would come in with them and they'd have a few more pints and <laughs> sit around and, and shoot the breeze with their friends. And so I think that's kind of the... There were no TVs. We had an old TV in the break room in the back that during the Soccer World Cup would be wheeled out and put on the end of the bar. But other than that, there were no TVs. And so conversation was really the order of the day. And I think that's kind of the exact opposite of the sports bars, you know, that have 35 different channels playing and and your eyes are automatically drawn away from the person you're talking to. So yeah, really just the community aspect. And then I guess just the ability to get a good curry, good Indian food anywhere you go, (laughs) big town or small. (laughs) Was that so? Was working in the pub your first job? It wasn't my first job. The first one was a paper round that my dad made me and my brother do. Um, so deliver, delivering the Western Gazette, which I believe is still running, and the Blackmore Vale, which are just two local regional newspapers in, in uh, Southwest England. And then, yeah, the first real one, though, that was just once a week, was, I guess, working for a catering company. And it was actually run by a guy who used to be the head butler to the Queen Mother. And so he was very Mr. Carson from Downton Abbey, you know, very proper. Many, I, I can't believe how many night, different knives and forks we used to put on the table for that. But everything had to be at the right angle, had to be spaced correctly. And uh, his inspection at the end of you laying that out was a terrifying thing to behold. So again, I'm kind of <laughs> lapsing the Dickensian self-parody here. But uh, that was the first job. And then I started tending bar, I guess you would say here, before I could drink legally in one of the local pubs that was walking distance. And uh, so, yeah, just the drinking age is a lot less there. And where I'm from, if you can see over the bar, you're pretty much good to go, which is probably not a good thing in retrospect. Yeah, really just plugged me into that culture. And obviously, later on, my friends would come in and in later years, but really just... uh, and the architecture of those places, you know, some of those buildings have been there since the 1500s, um, the, the high school I went to have been there since 1514, I think. The oh, my gosh. So, yeah, it was in some ways kind of Harry Potter-like. But, uh, yeah, so I guess maybe I romanticize it a little bit. But, yeah, just a real sense of community and togetherness. And uh, the locals, as we called them, you know, used to get local prices on their drinks and their food. And if they asked for a half pint, we'd give them a full one and that kind of thing. But really just that local culture that was really just a positive thing to see. And unless you have an environment where conversation's the main thing and where you aren't distracted by screens for a change. And I think walkability is a big, big part of it too. And just you know, urban design, I guess we could say, you know, I think did all you of those dream, things. Did you, did you daydream much? As a kid? Yes. Like I, I would imagine like walking through the, the countryside at, or uh, what'd you call it? Blackberrying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just dreaming. Yeah. A little bit. I, I, I don't know if it's some kind of trauma from my childhood, but I, I don't remember a whole lot about it. I wish I did. But I'm, I'm, you know, my wife has these vivid memories of when she was six, seven, eight years old, and I just, I just don't really. So I don't, I honestly don't know. Was there a trauma in your life as a kid? I, I think there were certain things, you know. 
not sure how much I want to get into it, but you know, somebody in, in my near family has a certain condition that made certain things challenging, should we say? And that's probably about as much as I can say about it. But um, okay. yeah, there were definitely some highs and lows, no doubt about it. Did you, as a kid, there's this romanticized version of, of life, right? You've got these rolling hills, this beautiful countryside, this small town village, and it's really quaint. I guess the word that, that comes to mind is this quaint village and, and a comfortable life. And so one might think that the people living there would be simply content to continue living there. But I would imagine having both of us being young, ambitious men still today, and, and especially then, we, we probably, you probably had visions and dreams of leaving and going on and, and doing bigger and better things. So what, as a kid growing up, whether I was an adolescent or your teenage years, what was your greatest hope or, or dream for your future? Yeah, I mean, in terms of employment, as I mentioned earlier, there's, unless you're going to be in the tourist industry or a dairy farmer or start producing your own hard cider or something, you know, or having to herd a sheep, there's not a lot of opportunities there. And there's probably a bit more now, you know, there's starting to be a bit more. They do have broadband internet where, I, where I'm from, I believe now. So I think you can probably, you know, there's probably a few people that work from home and, uh, and you know, small businesses is, is kind of bouncing back there. But at the time, it really didn't seem like there was that much in the way of what I wanted to do. And so I, I started, my friend Steve Mather introduced me to basketball when we were probably 14, 15. And I got really into it really fast. And I started actually after a while going up to Bristol, which was like three train changes and took basically from the time school finished, I would go to the the station, I wouldn't get home. I, my dad would pick me up at probably 11.30 or midnight. So I would go out to practice in Bristol twice a week and then play away games mostly as that we didn't have a home um, arena by any means on the weekend. And, um, and I also played for County, which is the equivalent of state after a while. And so it's... And again, the standard is nothing comparable to here. But really, my, my, the dream that started to formulate was that I wanted to play college basketball in the U.S., and so at a certain point, my dad sat me down and he said, well, here's the deal. You know, a lot of your friends are starting to drive. I, I can either buy you an old beater car and pay for driving lessons, or I can help you a little bit with, with college if you decide you really want to go that route. And so that wasn't even a question to me. I thought, well, as he said, enough of my friends are driving now that I don't really need that for mobility's sake. So let's go all in on this college thing. And so I ended up playing basketball and in the end soccer at a, a just a small NAIA school in Kansas City. So I came over in uh, in August of 2001 um, and it was soccer preseason and there's a certain period where you can't, the rules stipulate no, none of the, the teams in the league are allowed to touch a ball in practice until a certain date, you know, so no one gets a leg up on anyone else. And so, yeah, it was like running sprints outside and it was 105 degrees. And <laughs> <laughs> I'd never been in anything probably above 80 degrees in England because it doesn't get too crazy cold in the winter, doesn't get super hot in the summer. And so that was certainly a baptism of fire. And then there was <laughs> a couple of giant ice storms in the winter, you know. And But yeah, really, really cool situation because a, a lot of the, the Jamaican guys on the track team were drafted into the soccer team, which was only just restarting at this particular college. 
And um, then there were a couple of um, Argentinian cousins as well and a guy from Colombia. And so it was really like a little United Nations. And I think that that really helped me to fit in and, and some Americans as well. But um, and now they're probably a bit more discerning with their talent selection and their scouting. Back in the day, if you were foreign and you could kick a ball from here to the wall, you played soccer as well. And so, yeah, really just was able to do that, having passed, you know, got reasonable score on the SAT and you know, they, they, they don't really have a GPA equivalent for, for the A-levels that you take in England between the time okay. you're 16 and 18. So it basically, if you do okay on those, it gives you a 4-0. And so I was also able to get an academic scholarship. And um, yeah, so that's how I made my way to Olathe, Kansas. Of all places. So, you, so you hit Kansas, you're a collegiate athlete, your dreams are coming true. And then you discover that you have a gift for writing or how did you, how, how, what, did, what attracted you to to writing and, and how did you go about discovering that gift that you possessed? Yeah, I mean, I think it was something that was always around. My nan was Irish and was a great storyteller just from a, an oral history standpoint, you know. So she would tell me stories of uh, of the Blitz in London, where she worked as a shop girl in one of the department stores. So that was that kind of storytelling tradition was always around. And I was really, really close to her, both geographically and just, you know, she was a great role model and influence on my life. And then also my mom, before her fibromyalgia and, and arthritis got, got bad and really you know, made her hands and wrists too painful to, to be on the computer much, she did some freelance writing and wrote for you know, these very traditional British publications like The Lady and things like that. And so just the mechanics of that and seeing her write. And then she would also um, just encourage us to to tell stories as well. And so that was always around. You know, I I just always liked reading a, a, an awful lot and was always just spellbound by whether it was, you know, fiction, you know, J.R. Tolkien or, or nonfiction and just had always work, liked working on little stories. And it's kind of heartening now that my wife encourages our kids to do the same thing. And so we... Uh, either by paper and pen or we bought them those little green screen word processors, you know, that don't have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or anything like that and not connect to the internet. And they can, uh, they bang out a lot of words on those. So it's kind of nice to see that, that chain continuing now. But yeah, just in college, I was an English, English major at an American university. So when was, did somebody tell you at some point, whether it was your nan or your mom that you have a gift and you should continue to pursue it? Or was that something you just concluded on your own and, and, and were so in love with the process that you just pursued it individually? Yeah, it was more the latter. And then there was one, I think it was, a, I forget whether it was, it probably would have been my sophomore year. So we, we had to do various feature stories for some of these um, classes and a, and a professor, Jeannie Milhuff, um, was really good friends with a guy that would later become the the advisor for the school newspaper, and he he was the editor in chief of the Alatha Daily News, so, you know the local rag. And Alatha is maybe a hundred hundred and twenty thousand people, you know, a suburb Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And I got back from winter break, so I would go home and I would work double shifts in the pub with my friend Jono, probably six out of seven nights, and the seventh night. Our big extravagance was having a, a pint of Guinness in the rugby club, you know, and that was about it. And and so it was basically just work. And then our good friend Ben Spicer would come up to the rugby club and train with us. You know, we'd probably be up there 
four or five nights a week. And so it was just really working and training. And then I'd come back and with the money I'd saved up, I would turn that over to the bursar at the college. And that's how I would pay for school. And I worked from Hampstead a bit. And anyway, so, so, you know, had my, really had my head, head down working, but then I came back from Christmas break and found that someone was thrusting a copy of the later daily news into my hands. And, and I guess Professor Milhoff had given this, this feature story I had done on a guy um, who was a really good family friend of my, my future wife, my wife now, Nicole, and her family. And this guy, uh, Rollin, really, the, the assignment was write an in, a feature story about someone on campus who's interesting. And this guy had been a safe cracker for the FBI. You know, he was really a uh, real old character, good old, good old boy, and did, did all these crazy hobbies like crow hunting and, and skydiving. And was just, he was really old when I profiled him and, and actually passed away some years ago now. But just a real character and one of the most interesting people I'd ever met. And so um, that story was on the front of the Alatha Daily News. And that was my first cover story, really. And then another thing that happened, my friend Luke was up in New York at the time. And he had, I grew up with him in England, but he had worked his way up from really being an intern at this fashion magazine called Nylon to becoming um, the executive editor. And so he was over Nylon and then their men's publication around for a while, Nylon Guys. And so he was doing cover stories on Matthew McConaughey, you know, Sean White, all these amazing people. He called me one day, and this was when I was out of college, but it was a really big, big kind of pivotal moment in my writing career. And he said, hey, you know that book I'm working on? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, my dad's been real sick and his dad actually had stomach cancer. And I said, yeah. And he said, well because of my deadlines and basically running two magazines, I've only written 800 words on this book and it has to be 80,000 and I have three and a half months to turn it in or I'll be in breach of contract. And so basically, can you come alongside and, and help me finish this thing? And so I had a full-time job at the time writing for a software company, which is my, my first job out of college. And, uh, my son was, I think, Johnny, he's, he's going to turn 12 tomorrow. And he, I think he was two or three at the time. And, uh, and so I just said, yeah, I guess. So my wife, Nicole, would take, uh, would take herself and Johnny over to the mother-in-laws at the weekend. And I would write until 3 or 4 a.m. every night. And uh, we managed to bang this thing out. And what it was, of all things, was um, he had partnered with the Scratch DJ Academy that... Jam Master J from Run DMC had found it back <laughs> in the day. And uh, it was really partly a, like a how-to for DJing, but then also a history and culture, both on the hip-hop side and the electronic side. we kind of grown up in that electronic music scene, you know, Paul Oakenfold, Pete Tong, all those, Sasha, all those big DJs in the UK. So that was familiar. But then, yeah, the hip-hop side, I ended up interviewing Grandmaster Flash, Jazzy Jeff from The Fresh Prince, you know, and um, some of these real hip-hop masters. and. Uh, yeah. And so one, I really love the interviewing side of that. I mean, sometimes if it was guys on the West Coast, I'd be up talking to them till the wee hours of the morning. And we did, I think, 70 or 80 interviews in total. And I'd be sneaking off into the conference room at this company HQ to do interviews with these DJs and producers. And so I really just, it's partly the interviewing and partly just the process of being able to not only write my first book, but do it with a good friend and do it in three and a half months that showed me, oh, maybe I could do longer stuff. And then I started doing more and more for him at the magazine and then started to parlay that into other magazine work. And so really that was, that was the big kind of launching off point, I suppose. 
And so he was, would you say he was the first big door that opened up for you in that, in, in, in your writing career? Yeah, absolutely. And at this point, how many t- today, as of today, how many published words have you written? Do you even know? <laughs> no, I don't even know. I mean, book-wise, <laughs> yeah, I mean, book-wise, we're probably on nine or 10 now, maybe more, I don't know. And then, yeah, magazine-wise, I, I just don't know. Blog-wise, I don't know. It's a lot. <laughs> a, a lot of words. A lot of words. Yes. I mean, you are prolific. I mean, like the the that's probably the best word to describe your work is prolific or maybe ubiquitous because you've worked with some of the 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 biggest and and, and brightest minds, and you're, you've connected your mind and their mind and created incredible things. So when you think about using your gifts and and stepping into who you are created to be what is the most meaningful to you about what you're doing today i mean i think it's partly just honoring that god given talent in whatever area you've got i just recently interviewed the the uh big mountain skier mark abma and earlier today and so this doesn't even come out yet but for it's for a company called hana h-a-n-a-h and they, they create these supplements that are not your typical bs supplements so it's stuff like cordyceps you know harvested from the himalayas and things like that and so it's really pure really efficacious and they have this amazing group of individuals around them like jimmy chin and uh travis rice and then mark abner is another one and so just interviewed Mark right before we got on this call. And he said, you know, that he's really being having to be a lot, pay a lot more attention in how he schedules things. He said, because otherwise I could end up frittering, frittering away half or three quarters of every day on everything other than the thing that I was designed to do or created to do. And I was like, yeah, that's that resonates. And so I think also there's a I like the idea of being a conduit between a Kelly Starrett and a Dr. Andy Galpin, a Brian McKenzie, a Frank Merritt, whoever it is, and the ideas that are in their head. And often they're really good at conveying them um, on video. They're very good at, at teaching in person, workshops and such, and coaching. But they don't have the time to... or the or the. <laughs> the wherewithal with the written word to sit down and commit things to words, which prevents them from reaching, you know, the, the maximum audience and to create meaningful change for that audience. And so if I'm able to serve by coming alongside them and kind of being that middle channel in between the ideas in their head and the people that can potentially benefit from that and improve or maybe even change their life a little bit, then, you know, that's really a privilege and an honor to do that. I love this quote. That I that I, we were talking about before we hit record that he who lights the pathway for others sees more clearly his own and I want to I want to talk about that quote but before we get there I actually want to learn a little bit about like the process of taking somebody like a Kelly Starrett or a Brian McKenzie who who have these vast they're just they're just wells of information right they've they've tested things they've They've had their own personal experience, and they have all of these ideas and visions um, to help people. and And then they meet you, and you guys begin to collaborate. And I think it's not—I don't think it's a coincidence that you started talking about early in the conversation 
you started talking about the importance of community and conversation, right? Yeah. Uh, as uh, your childhood experience working in these pubs. Now, you fast forward, you're working with uh, these these prolific people who have these great visions and you're in the the pub of whatever space they are in, usually human development. And you're trying to bring these ideas out into the world in a broader way. What is the process? How do you begin? How do you begin to draw out these ideas and concepts and and really begin to highlight them and put them into the written word? Yeah, I mean, it really does start with, with, as you mentioned, just kind of the community and conversation aspect and then just curiosity on my end, you know, to to want to learn more. And and part of it is, as I mentioned, that kind of mentality, but there's also a selfish component of it where I want to learn from them so that I can apply things to my own life. And so, you know, whether it's the the mobility from, from Kelly or the breath work from Brian or his kind of concept of volume, intensity, density, and collision, like how you have to, you can't be developing all things maximally at all times. And so you need to load balance. And he's talking more physically and neurologically, but even I've started to apply that just cognitively in what I do day to day. And so there is a selfish thing where I'm curious and I want to know um, some things that maybe they haven't said to other people or haven't communicated. So yeah, sure. I can I can help them. Ben, you know, other people benefit from it, but also little nuggets I can take away from my own life as well. My family. I guess really we we we'd have a couple of opening conversations, and I just kind of feel them out and see if there's enough that meet in this particular topic that they're they're talking about to to warrant a book. And then from there, really, you just uh, put us both on our feet to the fire and say, okay, well. Let's let's test this this hypothesis that is enough for a book here, and see if we can come up with, say, ten to twelve chapter titles or topic areas. So, really, a table of contents, and then beyond that, the next level would be: can we find five to ten talking points within each of those? And then, once we have that, you know, and we've proven that the yeah, there is enough here. Then it really, really just start from the top and just interview around it. So everything from a, an introduction or preface, you know, then down into chapter one. And I let them know in advance. You know, I remind them like, "Hey, I'm going to be talking about chapter one today." And last time we got through this, this, and this, so we'll pick it up here today and resend them it so the documents in front. And hopefully they'll come, you know, prepare with some notes. And then really, I just ask them a few open-ended questions and let them talk while I scribble. And when I, when I can afford it, I, I sometimes have these calls transcribed. Then I can get into trouble for spending too much money on transcription. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a lot of the time, I don't. Yeah, and then so really, we just run the table. And there's sometimes what, you know, Kelly will say, oh, crap, you know, in chapter three, I think really we should reorder it. And, and then also there are these two or three things that I forgot to put in. So could we go back to that today instead? Well, sure, you know, we can we can do that. And then really I just write the whole manuscript beginning to end and then send it to them and let them know in advance. Like, hey, once I give it to you, you have two or three weeks. Because these are busy people, right? And if you if you said, okay, you've got six months to look through it and go through and make change, it would just it would never right. happen. It would right. just go to the back burner if if not taken off the stove entirely. So you you know just really setting some structure and expectations of hey you've got three weeks from this date, and then yeah from there I mean um, heaven help her my good lady wife Nicole is kind of our in house editor in chief so she re- reviews it an awful lot um, 
more than she would probably like to. And we just go back <laughs> and forth on it. And she calls me on my BS and all the redundancy, all the repetition, all of the fluff. She strips that away. And what we're really left with is something that's highly readable. And, you know, she mainly reads fiction. So she's used to reading things that are a bit more probably fast paced than the nonfiction I generally read. And so that really is just a massive help. And just another, you know, another set of eyes and also just her detail oriented nature, like nothing. She has her dad's mathematician brain. And so it's just pattern recognition. She's just amazing at weeding out all the errors. And so, um, yeah, How many really projects are you able to work on at a time? So, I mean, there's this kind of separation of church and state right now where the everyday thing, it, it, it seems to be trending towards blogs for some of the companies I mentioned. So HANA is one. XPT, Led Hamilton, and Gary Reese's company is another. We're doing a bit with Conor McGregor's team from McGregor, uh, Fast by Conor McGregor, which is kind of his cardiologist endurance training program that he wrote for Connor and is now worked for other athletes as well. And so that's getting ready to launch for the masses. Momentous protein is another one that, that I write for. And so there are these, uh, and then train heroic, I guess would be another one. So th- there are these various companies that do some editing for strong first as well, which is a real blessing to get to work with Craig Marker and Pavel and uh, Brett Jones and those guys. And so that's kind of the day to day. And so these are pieces that are usually, you know, a thousand to 2000 words. And there are quite a few of them that come off my printer and get put in Nicole's inbox every week. And then she redlines them and puts them back on my desk. And I uh, hopefully catch most of uh, <laughs> most of the things that, that she noted I got wrong. And so that's the day to day. And then yeah, really the books, I mean, we, we, we're dramatically reducing the volume. So I think the last like 14 months, we did five, which is insane. The next one with Kelly hasn't come out yet, but hopefully later this spring, that'll be out. And then Ghost wrote a couple, that, that the latest one I just literally finished up late last night. And so that's been a couple too um, on the Ghost writing side. And yeah, really the book the, the book thing isn't sustainable at the current pace. Like we really, Nicole had to set a boundary of saying like, you, we can only do one a year from now on out because it just, you know, you and I talked before we pressed record about some of the the travails with publishing <laughs> these days and just some of the lamentable situations we've got into there. And so um, it, it, it's it, it's really emotionally draining and you have to put everything on hold. And with two young kids and all the other day-to-day stuff I mentioned just a minute ago, it's just too much to do multiples anymore. So yeah, trying to trying to look, look back through Greg McKeown's book, Essentialism, and try to actually start practicing that rather than just giving it lip service as I have been for a, a number of years. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. One of the most important things that you've mentioned here 
in a roundabout way, and I definitely want to talk about are all of the relationships that you've built along the way. Relationships with Kelly, Brian, uh, Laird, and Gabby, and all of these people, Connor McGregor's team, all of these people are brands in and of themselves, right? And you've, you've built credibility and relationships with these people and their teams so that they collaborate with you. And I think that relationship building is probably the least taught but most important skill that anyone and everyone should have, whether you're an entrepreneur or an employee or a husband or a wife or a mother or a father or a brother or a sister, relationship building. So what have you learned along the way about relationship building? And, and what, how do you apply that in, in making sure that you're adding value to these people? Because I'm sure that's, that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, part of it's just the golden rule, you know, to treat others as you want to be treated. But I think to just trying to be respectful of the fact that a lot of these people don't have much time. And so going into each conversation prepared and ready to to hit it, to be respectful of their time. And then also recognizing that there are going to be those times where we've set up, you know, 2 p.m. on a Friday. And I call and I just get it goes straight to voicemail. And then I send a text saying, Hey, are we, are we still on for now? And I don't get a reply. And then maybe I'll, you know, an hour later, I'll shoot another text and then I don't hear anything. And then, you know, I'll, I'll back off for a day or two and then call again or, or shoot an email or another text and there's still nothing. And then like three days later, they check back in and like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I got called away because I had to go work with you know the seals down on coronado and you know it just got crazy and i was down there and my phone was off for four days and uh, you know i'm sorry to mess you around but yeah could we maybe look at tomorrow afternoon and then hopefully they're able to make it tomorrow afternoon initially that's kind of a little disconcerting but you start to realize that you know these people at this this high level are under so much pressure and they're having so many people pull on them at all times that it's um it's not going to do for me to throw a hissy fit about that kind of thing. And then also just being super prepared for interviews. So example, example with um, Brian, we interviewed the agent Ari Emanuel, you know, who Ari Gold in, in the show Entourage is based on. And we got, I think, seven minutes. Maybe it was 12, but it wasn't very long. And, <laughs> you know, it was really just two open-ended questions. Ask him, get out of the way. And then it's like, well, I've got to go. As I said, I've got a hard stop, got to go in this meeting. And it's like, okay, well, cool. And you're really grateful that you even got that much time. Right. And so it's partly just, I guess, being prepared and, and professional. And, um, and then recognizing, again, with the publishing scenario, that there are a lot of speed bumps along the way, whether you go with the self-published route. You know, we've done the thing with big publishers. And the publishing industry, as we talked about a bit offline, is just getting more and more myopic, more and more focused on surefire bets or crappy derivative genre fiction. And mm-hmm. so the middle is really getting squeezed right now. And so just knowing that that is going to be difficult and trying where certain co-authors don't have experience with that, to guide them as best we can. And just really trying to be helpful. Like, how, how can I be helpful? How can I serve you? How can I help you? So going back to that quote about he who lights the path for others sees more clearly his own. What's the most surprising thing that you've discovered about yourself along the way of helping other, bring other people's ideas and visions to reality? 
It's it's maybe more what I've been trying to do a bit of recently. So obviously, you and I personally have been down this route route recently with just be trying to give you a bit little bit of advice and <laughs> really just comment on some of the mistakes and some of the grievous mistakes I've made along the way. And then there are a couple of buddies who both actually came from breaking muscles, so Ch- Shane Trotter and uh, Pete Hitzman, that are working on book projects right now. And just trying to, um, and then Ian McMahon is another one who writes for The Athletic, writes for Outside, writes for The Atlantic. I mean, just one of the best writers and also like <laughs> a true autodidact. Like the guy is a full-time licensed physical therapist. You know, his wife's a, a pediatrician. They're just um, brilliant people. And all, by the way, he's one of the best writers out there in this human performance space. So really just trying to help all of those folks along in their own journey to want to write books. and just be able to give a little bit of advice along the way, whether it's how do I find time to write when I have, you know, two kids, you know, in Shane's case, he just adopted two kids and has a full-time job and has all these other responsibilities. Like how on earth am I even going to get time to write, finish this? Well, so then we start to look at something like Cal Newport's deep work about how to to create these calendar blocks, you know, and really find the time in the day that that you have available and really block out distraction. So it it could just be more environmental design like that, or mm-hmm. just, you know, have this idea, how do I take it to the next stage of, you know, making it into a book, that kind of thing. So really with that, it's just um again, just trying to take what I've learned and what has been shown to me and then help pass it along. And sometimes you just need someone to be in the foxhole with, right? To share the stoke or to share some encouragement or to, to get you off your ass when your project is stalled. And so I think that all of the above is uh, is good. And even just over the weekend, just shooting Pete and Shane a quick note just to say, how's it going? And then uh, my buddy Ben Fields in the UK, who is a, a TRX coach that I met when I was speaking down at the TRX um, annual conference last year and just made a lot of great relationships out of, out of that TRX community as well. And so, you know, th- those guys are being so good to me that just want to, you know, Come, come alongside them and help in, in any way I can. And so, yeah, you start to see those uh, those ripple effects. And um, yeah, really, I need to figure out a better way because I get approached an awful lot about doing books and I have to say no to way more than I would like. I wish I just had endless capacity and could drink espresso 24 hours a day and bang out like 20 a year because I love doing <laughs> it, but I can't. So, you know, a question I haven't yet answered is what becomes of the overflow where it's an interesting I have my one a year now and I'm booked out now through the end of 2020 already. So where do I go with that then? Like mm. who, who do I go to? So maybe you and I can figure that out at some point. Like yeah, what, yeah, what, what, what do we do? Because there's, the there's the book in the box route, you know, which or the company formerly known as, which is great, which you could send people to, but that's kind of pay for play. Um, so really, how, I guess the question remains, how do we find this stable of writers who are capable and would really want to co-author a book. And then, you know, there are all these opportunities there. So how do we how do we start to connect them more? And I'm um, not giving a rose-tinted view because some of these books, you make no, absolutely no money. And from a finances standpoint, it's a complete loss leader. But again, like you said, it's that connection that then you get called, you know, a year later from a co-author. And they're like, hey, you know, my buddy at X company needs that, you know, needs someone to edit their blog. And then that turns into a, another 10-year relationship with a different set of people. And so it's definitely not something where I could just make money off of doing books because we, we'd be destitute and living out of our car. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but 
But it is, it, it really does come back to, I think Tim Ferriss said it best. He did, he, he was interviewed by Chase Jarvis for Chase's Creative Life podcast. And, and he said, you know, so many of my, my book projects have not been, and Tim's done really well. I mean, it's, you know, million, millions of copies sold, no doubt, but some of the, those were not money spinners as people would think. But he said, even if they had failed by any objective measure that the world would put on them, which is i.e. royalties, dollars and cents, that the skills that he's either developed or honed and the relationships that he has built mean that they're worth it far beyond whatever quarterly check he does get or doesn't get from a publisher. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. the skills... And the relationships, like exactly what you just said, that that is where it's at. When you think about purpose, you know, purpose is a, a is an interesting thing. I I, I kind of want to toss this. I haven't asked this question of anybody yet, but I but you are around a lot of scientific minds. You have a well balanced understanding of science and creativity, and so I'd love to just test this question with you and see 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 how you answer it. So the question is, if you were to approach the idea of finding purpose or finding purpose or meaning from a scientific point of view, how would you do it? Oh, man. Yeah, I'm just not that scientific. That'd be an Andy Galpin, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. From a scientific standpoint, I don't know. I mean, just from a more philosophical one, I think that you... You know, David Epstein, who I mentioned earlier, has a new book called Range coming out. And it's kind of the opposite of the what I think it was born out of the I wouldn't say it's a counterpoint to to Anders Ericsson's ten thousand hours idea of you know in specialization. But even if you just look at the blurb on Amazon, you know, it's basically saying like a Roger Federer or a Peyton Manning played an awful lot of sports, and it was only later that, you know, in Federer's case tennis and Manning's case uh, football. And there are all these other stories of generalists who later became specialists. But there are also plenty of people that are only ever generalists. And that's okay. Like you don't have to find your thing. And even in rereading Cal Newport's deep work, and by the way, I'm stoked out of my mind. I just saw the, uh, the email saying that his, his next book, Digital Minimalism, is, is on its way. I pre-ordered that, I think, November of last year. So I'm pretty, pretty excited to read that. That aside, Newport says that it's a fallacy to believe that unless you are, you know, like a Grammy winning musician or an Oscar winning actor or one of these things that us or, a, you know, a multi-million dollar endorsement deal athlete that, you know, you can't find purpose in what you do. And that, you know, he makes the example of like a wheelwright, you know, somebody that made wooden wheels back in the day or probably still does on Etsy. There's probably like a whole cottage industry of wheelwrights out there. <laughs> Hipsters, you know, mustaches, long beards, espresso, <laughs> flannel. But they, you know, joking aside that you, you can, someone in shaping that wheel, even though it was just for the wagons of their local community, could have found immense purpose and satisfaction in, hence the name of the book, the deep work that they were doing there. And then I also heard a pastor one time talk about uh, a, a friar who wrote, and it's a bad anecdote when you can't remember the name, maybe you know, but it was a guy who's basically his job in, in the monastery was to, to serve eggs and then clean the egg pan and then go out and, and fry up and serve eggs again. And he talked about the immense satisfaction he found in that. And maybe that's what it inspired Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he talks about, you know, if a man is going to be a street sweeper, 
let him be so good effectively and I'm butchering this but that you know the angels in heaven will, will sing about it and celebrate it that kind of idea so hmm. I guess you just um in what whatever you find yourself in just do it to the best of your ability and then it goes back to kind of the Greek idea of being well-rounded you know spiritually cognitively physically where you know if and if you have good work habits you can't really separate that from your physical practice and then I think that we're, you know, Andy, Andy Galpin says that we can't always be optimizing and that, that that's a mistake to do it because often conditions are less than optimal when you have to perform. And I really thought about Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen in The Dawn Wall, which if you yes. have seen that film, Phenomenal see, that, movie. see that and also see Free Solo and see them both back to back. They're both amazing. But they were up on that wall for, what, 15, 16 days. And Jorgensen, could not get that one sequence and basically urged Caldwell just to go ahead and finish solo without him. But Caldwell, because he's a good guy and he didn't want to leave his buddy behind, basically came back down and said, nope, we're just going to embed here. And as long as it takes to let you finish, we're going to let you finish. And so I think that the lesson there is that you can't always be making forward progress, that sometimes you have to go back and you have to wait and we're very uncomfortable with that in our culture because we want to believe that if we just implement enough hacks and we just optimize all of this stuff and we just read enough self-help books and apply a couple of things from each one that we're going to have this heaven on earth, this utopia. And one, I don't think it exists in the sense that, that we think about it in that way. But two, life is not linear. It would be nice if it was. Like, it isn't like climbing a ladder. And even the example with, with again, going back to Corwell and Jorgensen, Corwell realized that he didn't have it in him to make this eight-and-a-half-foot spider monkey sideways leap that they called the dino problem. Yeah. And so what he had to do, instead of leaping eight-and-a-half feet to his left, because he couldn't, and he tried this thing, you know, understand that he dedicated like eight years of his life to this. He built a replica of this on his shed in, in Colorado to try to figure it out. He couldn't do it. So he had to down climb around the problem and then up climb again. And it ended up being what, like 250, 300 feet. So yeah. he had to go maybe say 20 times further to navigate a problem in life. And it involved going down, going backwards a bit, going sideways, going back up, coming down a bit more, diagonal. And so I think that's a really good metaphor for life that you just... Oh, man. Uh, oh, <laughs> and unfortunately, hacker culture encourages us that we're, oh, well, if we just do this one more thing in our day, or well, we're going to 10x our productivity and people are selling courses and eBooks left and right about this crap. But I, I don't think there is one big earthly secret that's going to give us that and so yeah sometimes it's just patience and, and we're all bad at it i'm as bad as anyone but recognizing that sometimes like like tommy Caldwell and dawn wall you're going to come across a problem that seems tangible to get to us the logical solution which is just this big leap across but you're going to try it like 200 times and realize i can't and, and then what are you going to do um are you going to quit? you know have you ever heard of a guy named robert glazer no i haven't he has a, a weekly blog that he publishes called Friday Forward. And the most recent one was, was about quote unquote life hacks. And he, he just, he went on a rant similar to what you just said. And I, and, and I think that you should, you would enjoy this blog, by the way, I think you would. But 
I think that that analogy that you just pointed out, I, I, I'd seen the Don Wall, but I'd never really thought about it. But to, I, it resonates with me because that's where I feel like I'm at with my own project, right? So mm-hmm. I've, I've gone backwards to go forwards, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's about being okay with that and focusing on the process. And I think that that's what Tommy Codwell and, and others, one of the things that separates them is that yes, they have this desired outcome. But they are so focused on the process of getting there that they're willing to go 20 times in the wrong direction in order to get onto the path. Yeah. We got a moment of levity, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We shared it. Yeah. I like it. Or another yeah. one I think is like, who's Jeff Clark, the guy at Mavericks, right? Like uh-huh. the famous Northern California surf break. So, it, I think it's in the film Step Into Liquid that tells it best. And, and then also the book Mavericks by the, the same guy that wrote, uh, Matt Warshall that wrote The Encyclopedia of Surfing is a really good book on my shelf. I see it right now. And, and I think it holds that. Sometimes you've got to break new ground. And, and some people may not even know about it. Like we live in this culture of gym mirror selfies and where so-and-so was live on Facebook. So they're three followers, you know, it's like this self-delusional thing of that. We got to share everything, but sometimes you've got to do the hard work alone and in secret. And I think that, um, this guy at Mavericks was paddling out this ferocious, sharky, you know, break that most surfers would drown the first time they went out by himself, not telling anyone for years and years, um, before he started to get that community around, they show and step into liquid. And then it became, you know, this big, big thing, this Maverick surf contest, but it, or or even Laird and Dave Kalama and Derek Dorner and these guys at at Jaws before it became, you know, any idiot that could tow into a wave is going out there now and it's getting really dangerous. But, you know, sometimes you've got to go out and do the hard work in secret and and alone. Even in Fergus Conley's latest book, 59 Lessons, he talks about, uh, I think it was Ronan O'Gara, the great Irish um, and, and Munster rugby, um, it's felt like the Munsters, you could look it up. They have a, a culture that's probably only second to the New Zealand All Blacks. That It's just this legendary culture within the world of rugby. And, and O'Gara said a thing, something like that the postman doesn't get a, uh, a medal for delivering the mail. And so sometimes we just got to go out and do the hard work, even if it isn't recognized, even if we don't have 1.2 million Instagram followers. Um, or any Instagram followers and just and do that process like Coldwell of, of spending eight and a half years on this bloody wall and then getting up there and, and encountering a seemingly insurmountable problem and then realizing that to, to overcome it, we're going to have to go back a bit, down a bit, sideways a bit, and, and we're going to travel 20 times, 30 times, a thousand times further than we had hoped and anticipated. But the initial way isn't doable. So therefore, what? You either quit or you have to, to improvise and then put in the hard work to really break the back of that and, and then progress. I love that. you know. And, and Phil, we could uh, continue talking for hours because I'm so fascinated by all of this stuff and, and tapping the fullness of our God-given potential because I believe that when we master our story, our gifts, and that gives us permission to take action and then be part of the right community, then we really will see what we're capable of doing. And I look forward to continuing to growing in friendship with you. But before we jump off the, the interview, I always conclude each conversation with the same questions. First of which is, where can people connect with you? 
Oh, that's a tricky one. I um, <laughs> well, it is now anyway. So my my co-conspirator Kenny Kane and I are kind of off social right now. So we didn't realize until I got a little snippet of an interview with Cal Newport that I saw last week. And, and somehow he managed to get like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, amazing media coverage of this digital minimalism book, but he's a brilliant mind, so rightly so. And I didn't realize that he starts off this book with a 30-day social media detox challenge. And so Kenny and I did this. And then I went back on for about three weeks and realized I was hating it. And I kept telling the cold. And she was like, well, if you hate it so much, just stop talking about it and just get off. So that was reasonable. So I did. And Kenny's off right now too. And, And it's partly just, as I said, we were on book five in 14 months, which is too many. We were, you know, spinning up some new clients, expanding relationships with some existing ones. And so this really stressful period. And I just felt like social was one too many bloody things. So I'm off right now. But yeah, just my website, philwhitebooks.com. I don't update it as much as I can, but there's a contact form on there if anyone wants to get in touch and have a chat. That would be great. Ask a question, disagree with me on something, that that would be fine. And then really just to, yeah, I mean, the 17-hour fast, I think, is a, is a book that on the, the face of things is about fasting. But really, it's, it's a reset book. It's a boundaries book. And so I think, you know, that's probably the best representation of my, my recent work. And then if you're a, a surfer, a paddler, or a rower, then Waterman 2.0 that Kelly Starrett and I put out late last year is kind of a seven-year opus it's really a movement manifesto, a way of uh, dealing with niggling injuries, preventing future ones, optimizing your, your recovery and your performance. So if, if water sports is your game, that would be it. And yeah, just check out those books. And if, uh, if you like them, I'd love to, love to hear what you think uh, via my website. Well, we will definitely link to those things in the show notes. The, uh, then I have three final questions that, that will require a little bit of thought. But uh, the first one, I'm pretty sure I know you'll be able to answer it pretty quickly. It is, uh, if you could pick a, a skill set that you currently possess, so any skill that you currently have, and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Oh, man. Take the ability to speak bad high school French and turn that into the superpower of being able to speak any language, every language. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Uh, What do you think are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing the fullness of our God-given potential? That it's not... That what we want to do isn't a good job. That a full-time job is steady, safe, and secure. And that I can't do this thing because... There's a lot of other people doing it because I'm only just getting started because I don't have time. Rise above it. You're the only you. You're the only one that has your story to tell or your thing to create the way you're going to do it. And with the time thing, (laughs) read Greg McKeown's book, Essentialism, and then read Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, and start to implement those habits and strip away what is non-essential to provide the space to do that thing. Because how many people do we know that say, we ask them, oh, yeah, how's your book going? And rather than giving the great answer of, oh, it's almost finished, or oh, it's you know, in, in production. Well, I just, you know, I just haven't really had, had the time recently. Mm-hmm. And then they go through the excuses, Rolodex, like on Seinfeld. And, uh, and then you keep having the same conversation with them. 
and you just want to shake them. And it's like, look, everyone's busy, but the amount of people these days that won't answer your phone call and yet are posting to Instagram and Facebook like 10, 12 times a day. Yeah. <laughs> so they say they're busy, but the average American spends 50 minutes uh, that's on Facebook spends 50 minutes on Facebook a day, let alone the other platforms. Oh my gosh. Cultivated a practice of doing anything for 50 minutes a day, you could learn to play the guitar, you could publish that book, you could start that company, and you could make a darn good go of it if you were just willing to cut out something that is truly non-essential. So question of just stop talking yourself out of stuff, strip away what's non-essential and really hone in on, and as you said, what, what is your God-given ability and, and how do I make the best of it and stop worrying about security and safety because here's a newsflash. You can be in what you think is the most secure full-time job ever. And even if it's with a, a company full of your buddies who you've known for your whole life, one day you get that call that says, we, we've been doing the budget numbers for next year, bud, and you're not in it. Mm-hmm, and your mm-hmm. entire world and everything you believed about safety and security and an in quotes good job gets pulled away. And it, then you're going to go on a pretty painful process of self-discovery to understand that there is no such thing as safety in in the economic sense. Uh, read the big short <laughs> again. Yeah, watch the right. big short movie by Michael Lewis. It's a house of cards. And so I think Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus go into this in their next book, The Passion Paradox, more that you know, just being passionate about something doesn't mean it's something you should turn your whole life over to or that you'll necessarily be able to make a living from it. And there are plenty of people in history that were passionate about stuff that were not good people, like Adolf Hitler, uh, that kind of thing. You know, Stalin, they were real yeah. good at being dictators and it didn't turn out so well for the rest of us. But um, again, silliness aside, I'm just trying to tell my kids, you're not going to have an office job, okay? And you're not going to go to college and drop 200 grand in a few years on an education for something that you think is going to give you a good job. Because you know what a good job is? It's doing what you love and then figuring out a way to monetize it, which you will in the end. Totally. Yeah. And, and you either will do it the painful way or the, or the less painful way, but either way, there's going to be struggle, you know, man, that was, I I was just high-fiving you through our computers right now, as you were preaching the truth there, because I totally agree with you. Uh, The last question is, is kind of a little bit of a doozy. It's one that uh, I want you to go to your heart on. And there's a title of a book by Clay Christensen named, uh, how will you measure your life? But Rather than just ask, asking that question, how will you measure your life? I, I want to ask it a little bit in a little bit more of a creative way. So pretend that it's a hundred years from now and you've left a set of instructions for a writer, since that's what you do, for a writer to to write a a scene in a story that will depict the answer to that question, what instructions would you leave him or her? Yeah, I mean, I think it would almost be a a grandson talking to their grandmother or grandfather and just asking, you know, when they're a bit older and they can can appreciate this person isn't going to be with me forever and, and they have some knowledge to pass on, you know, just ask them, you know, what, what do they think makes a good life? And the, and the grandparent just looks at them and they say, well, you know, do you, do you, you've got to find something to do that you can be passionate about and that, that feels right to do and, and do it, do it with people who care for people who care and, you know, try to, as best you're able, though we all fall down, try to 
to love the people around you as best you can and to to act with integrity and just to you know then i don't know just surround surround yourself with positive people who will encourage and challenge you and hold you accountable and then you know if you have a faith try to be true to that and, and live it out with fear and trembling as best you're able and really just try to you know own your mistakes hold up your hand uh, when you do make one and try try to move on but really just try try to live a life of integrity uh, and that would be the answer although a better script writer would shorten that up <laughs> and add more tears and yes all of those things yes by the prague philharmonic orchestra or something (laughs) phil white thank you so much for joining us on the impact entrepreneur show and impacting our audience and sharing your story with us oh well thank you pleasure's all mine thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening if you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lawton Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.